0: Welcome to episode 475 with my guest Sam Dingman. Um, Paul Gilmartin, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that does not blow. You you like how I substituted below for suck? I just wanted to mix it up a little bit. I want to kick things off with an awfulsome moment filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as uh, still surprisingly oblivious. And they write, I lived in Phoenix as a kid long before air conditioning was common. One summer when I was four or five, my mother sent us kids to her parents for the summer To try to work things out with my crazy abusive dad when we came back i pulled my monopoly game out of the closet to play monopoly pieces used to be made of metal and i was surprised to find that one had melted but phoenix summer no ac made sense i took it to my mother and explained what had happened to it i didn't realize till years later that it was the slug of a bullet my father had fired through the wall while we were away. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is a happy moment filled out by Teresa. She writes, motorcycle riding with my father. I love the wind in my face and blowing through my hair the connection, closeness, and trust I had in him as we would ride, the feeling of freedom and sometimes fear. That's such a great one. And I never thought about how freedom and fear can happen at the same time. And it, it, as I was thinking about it, I one of the things when I go skiing, I love to scare myself. I love to go so fast that I scare myself. And I'm sure that's part of being an addict and just wanting to, you know, be shaken out of whatever it is that I that, that I'm feeling, but I'd never thought about that. And I guess it kind of makes sense because there's usually fear for most of us attached to the unknown. And obviously if there's, you know, danger there. But what a beautiful, beautiful one. Thank you for sharing that. I want to share this email I got from uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, named Brittany, and she writes, Hi Paul, first off, I just wanted to say I've been listening to the podcast for about six years now, and I just love what you do. I'm a marriage and family therapist, and I wanted to write in with just a little bit of feedback from a therapist's perspective on something that I hear often on the podcast and in the surveys. It seems that there are times where people feel their therapist didn't validate them shamed them or don't completely hear the pain and suffering the client was feeling often when these things come up you give advice to look for a new therapist i wanted to just give a little feedback because we therapists are humans too just humans too and we don't always get it right sometimes we're having an off day maybe we had a particularly heavy session with another client and can't shake it maybe our pet died the day before Sometimes we just didn't have time to drink our coffee yet, and it's impossible to respond correctly with our clients 100% of the time. For me, I really appreciate when my clients speak up if I've said something wrong or hurt my client's feelings in some way. There is some very powerful, and powerful as in caps, work that comes in confronting your therapist and working through and solving interpersonal problems within the therapeutic relationship. It provides clients a new way to experience conflict. For example, maybe in the past you weren't safe to express conflict because your mother or father would belittle you. Maybe you go through life avoiding conflict and running away from it because you believe and feel that expressing your concerns will cause people to hurt you or leave you. There is power in finding a new way to view conflict and working through it in a space and a relationship where you will be respected and heard. There's power in experiencing a new, more positive way of handling these things and learning to speak up for yourself. My suggestion before terminating therapy and finding a new therapist when your therapist maybe doesn't say the perfect response is to try to talk with them about it and reach a resolution. If your therapist becomes defensive and is unwilling to admit fault or explore what happened, then you should terminate hope this is helpful paul have an awesome weekend and i'll forever be a loyal listener thank you so so much for that um that makes total sense to me and i i have exp- i don't know if i've ever had an experience with a therapist where my feelings were hurt by them but i have had moments where i was angry you know maybe they were um asking a question that I didn't feel like going into or, or I was just feeling like I didn't want to be in therapy that day. And those are always fruitful things. I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, much like Brittany was saying, those were really fruitful things because for many of us, therapy becomes the template for what intimate conversations can and should sound like outside of the, the therapeutic. I love how I'm just repeating what she fucking said. <laughs> fucking jackass. And speaking of therapy, uh, our sponsor for today is betterhelp.com. Um, if you've never tried online therapy, give it a shot. It's awesome not having to leave your house. They have tons of great qualified therapists and if you want to know more about it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast. And then you can just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they think is a good match for you, uh, they will match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. It It, it is for me. I love it. Uh, I've been doing it. A couple of years now, and it's an important part of my recovery and and keeping my warped brain uh, tuned up. And if I didn't mention it, you need to be over uh, eighteen. We are also sponsored by Early Bird CBD products. As I've shared before on the podcast, uh, I've struggled with insomnia, and Early Birds nighttime gummies work unlike anything that I have ever tried before. Uh, There's no THC in them. And Early Bird carries a lot of other CBD products. Uh, They have creams for, you know, achy joints. It's it's great. And if you're confused about CBD and you don't know where to start, just go to earlybirdcbd.com or even better yet, give them a call and their customer care will answer any questions you may have and they'll help you find the right product. Uh, every product uh, that Early Bird carries is from top quality manufacturers because there is a huge variety in the quality of CB- CBD stuff out there. And it's extensively tested for safety and potency. And they have the best pricing online. And each order is also uh, included with uh, free shipping. So you guys can get 20% off your first order by going to earlybirdcbd.com mental and use the discount code mental for 20% off your first order. EarlyBirdCBD.com slash mental with discount code mental for 20% off your first order. Feel better today and live better tomorrow with Early Bird CBD. Uh, and then finally, before the po- we get to the interview with um, Sam, this is from the LOVES survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as uh, Torpal. And they write, I am in a deep, deep depression and can't find the energy to appreciate much. But sometimes that that never fails to make me smile. I think they meant to say what. But sometimes what never fails to make me smile is when my cat comes up to me and starts meowing in his strange, whispery way. His food dish is full and he doesn't want to be let outside. His litter box is clean. He doesn't want to play, be picked up or even touched. I have no idea what he wants me to do for him, but maybe he doesn't know either, and he just wants to feel acknowledged, which I can totally relate to. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry we need to
1: be with people i grabbed them by their throats and let them down to the floor and watch the breath
0: leave their bodies well, Maybe listen thanks for coming in <laughs> I'm here with Sam Dingman, who is a performer, a storyteller, a podcast host. We've actually done ads for uh, your podcast, Family Ghosts. Yes, Uh, we have. Is it going well? It's going great, and
1: thank you for doing those ads. Sure. (laughs) really appreciate it. And I I was really thrilled to get to tell our listeners about your work um, as well. Um, Yeah, I'm really thrilled to be here.
0: Uh, Sam has, uh, you were the Grand Slam winner of The Moth. That's a pretty hoity-toity title, man. Yes. That is a very competitive <laughs> storytelling uh, event. Yeah, it was
1: a really amazing experience. Um, I did, the moth, is is the moth in L.A.? Do they do the moth out here? I believe so, yeah. 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 Um, the way it works is uh, you go to, they have open mics every week, and you go and they do this slightly ridiculous thing, sorry moth, where they have people in the audience give numerical scores to the mm-hmm. performers. Um, so it's not exactly scientific, but... Um, If you win one of those, then you get to compete in this thing called the Grand Slam, where it's the winners of the previous 10 uh, open mics. And so I got to do this show. This was uh, seven years ago now. Um, But I got to do this show at Music Hall of Williamsburg, which at the time was easily the biggest venue I had ever gotten to perform in. There were like 600 people there. Um, And that for that show, the people who do the judging are other moth storytellers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously... It, it's flattering for anybody to like your work, but these are people whose work I had been going to see and just marveling at for years, and so to get to win in their presence was
0: uh, it was a very cool experience. <laughs> Would you be comfortable sharing the the cab story with us, or is sure. that something that happened so long ago you can't remember how to tell it?
1: No, I I mean it it uh, it has stuck in my memory. It was a really transformational moment for me. Um, it it actually is. Uh, definitely ties into a lot of things that I think about now in my life. Um, but basically the story is that I moved to New York because I wanted to from? be from Northern Virginia. Okay. Um, and ever since I knew that driving was something that people did, I wanted to be able to do it to the point that I used to sit. specifically cabs, eventually cabs. Mm-hmm. I think before I thought about that as a career, I just wanted to be driving somewhere. Um, to the point that I would I would actually sit in my... Both of my parents had cars with um, standard transmissions. Mm-hmm. So starting when I was like 14 or 15, I would just sit in the parking lot and practice shifting. Like I'd push out the clutch and practice shifting on their cars and I would shut my eyes and I had this whole imagined route in my head that I would go through. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. Um, and once I found out that you could <laughs> drive for a living, I thought that's what I want to do. Because I, there's something for me about driving that it ties into an anxiety about, I guess, just performance in general in life. But what I love about driving is that your job is just to be on your way somewhere. You don't like the arrival is not the point. It's the setting out and being in the moment of the trip. Um, that's just always been really appealing to me. So, um, anyway, then life continued. My parents, when I was in high school, were like, you can absolutely not be a cab driver. We will not permit that to happen. Um, and I went to college. I majored in theater. I moved to New York. I wanted to be an actor. And I had been living in New York for, I think, maybe three years at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, as I say in the uh, Moth story, the uh, extent of my resume was I originated the role of nightclub patron number three in the off-off-Broadway debut of Sex in the City, the play, the parody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that role was literally... Um nightclub patron number three enters this like really cool swank nightclub, uh, feels really awkward and out of place. Somebody walks up and says to him, Get out of here, we don't want you in here. And he's like, I'm sorry, and he leaves. Which was a very apt metaphor for how I was feeling about <laughs> my life at that time. Um and I was working at a hotel as a bellman at that point, and There would always be all these cab drivers outside the hotel who had, I think of it as this kind of piratical energy. You know, I was working at the hotel I was working at was a Hilton, so I had to wear epaulettes, and I had like a little name tag and a hat, and they didn't like that I didn't cut my hair in a certain way, and um, there were all these very intense Hilton corporate standards, and the cab drivers would be outside, holes in their jeans, like... Mm -hmm. Ratty sandals, smoking cigarettes, making fun of us every time we would come out of the hotel with guests, and they would tell these amazing stories about sitting in the parking lot at j f k and playing poker and um it just seemed so cool, and so I was like i, I want to do that i that's mm-hmm. what I want to do um, and so it's terrifyingly easy to become a cab driver, uh, or at least it was at the time I did it. this is back in two thousand and seven um it costs a lot of money up front but um it's you know you go to 3 days of classes at Long Island City Taxi College um and you take a very easy test and then they just send you out into the streets and at first it was like a little bit bumpy but um really a couple weeks in i was i was pretty good at it um i i think i enjoyed a certain amount of privilege for not the first time in my life as a white dude doing it because i think it, it was weird to people that i was a white guy driving a cab and so that created opportunities for ha- for me to have all these really interesting thought provoking conversations often with fairly racist people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and the bigger thing though was just this sense of you know New York is this big seething mass of intensity and prestige. And when you drive a cab, you are part of the DNA
0: of that organism. Artery.
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, yes. you're, it's it's so easy to feel on the outside yeah. of exciting cities. It's New York is one of the hardest cities to take a nap in because you always feel like noise aside, you always feel like something amazing is going out and I'm missing uh, going on and I'm missing out.
1: I agree with you so much. It's like you feel like bad blinking sometimes, right. and but when you're driving a cab. You're, yeah, you're part of like the limbic system of how this thing operates. And it, in some small way, this insane experiment of New York can't function without people driving cabs. You're the arteries and the asshole of New York. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, something I have, this is a bit of a digression, but something I've just been thinking about a little bit recently is it's different now because there's Uber and Lyft and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But at the time, Basically, the only way to get a cab was you couldn't call a cab. A lot of people don't know this about cabs in New York. You can't call and have one come pick you up. You just walk out into the street and you stick your hand in the air. And the philosophy is we'll just put a bunch of cabs out there so that if someone's standing with their hand in the air, an available cab will probably drive by. That's it. It, It's not more complicated than that, which makes no sense, especially for a place where there's as much riding on people getting to places on time as there is in New York. Yeah. And I think it's really beautiful that we call the act of doing that hailing. Right. Like you, you stick your arm in the air, you literally right. like perform an act of reverence to madness. <laughs> right. And you are rewarded. The city is yes. like, thank you for your respect. Here is a cab that will take you.
0: And, and it can be like if it's raining or you're late somewhere, mm-hmm. it it can be, be not only beyond beyond maddening, but uh, just... So panicky, absolutely. When you've got to be somewhere and there's nine people standing next to you and they're all trying to hail a cab, yeah. And they're not necessarily respecting who got there first, and every cab going by already has yep. one in it. And then I would imagine you add to the mix that you're someone of color, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. So many cabbies won't stop or absolutely. won't go to certain neighborhoods. So I, I yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, another thing about this, this whole dynamic that we're discussing, which it obviously has a lot of flaws in it, but is also weirdly beautiful. I think mm-hmm. it doesn't exist anymore because of ride sharing. Like this whole kind of magic secret system, uh, is basically gone, which I think is a loss, but, um, at any rate, uh, I had been driving for a little while and I was starting to get kind of good at it and really relishing that sense of in some small way, I matter in some small way. I belong to this, this beautiful, complicated, torturous body that we call New York. Um, and I even remember one night I was driving across the the bridge to go back to the city after like a particularly successful day. Um, and I remember saying to myself, like out loud, uh, I belong here. I belong here. Um, and, (laughs) uh, well, and and as I, as I say in the moth thing, I, I was, I was struck by the thought I belong here. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, a few months after that, I was struck by something else, a Jeep Wrangler, (laughs) which T-boned me going at like top speed, uh, down 79th street. I was pulling out of this, uh, the sort of turnaround in front of an apartment building Mm -hmm. And it was being driven by this woman who did not have a seatbelt on and she had a baby in her lap and she hit me going like 40 miles an hour. And all I remember is the sound of the impact and like this cacophony of horns and screaming and coming to rest in the middle of the street. I had a passenger in the back seat who I like looked into the back seat and he looked at me and was like, just gave me this panic look and opened the door and just sprinted down the street. He was gone. (laughs) And then I looked to my left and there's a cop in the window and he's like, step out of the car. Are you okay? Are you okay? I was fine. It hit close enough to the front of the car that like the car was really badly damaged, but I was okay. Mm -hmm. And even more importantly, thankfully the woman and her baby were also somehow okay. And so we go over and we're standing on the corner and the cop says to me, don't worry about it. I saw everything. Um, and he has me, it was totally her fault and he has me start to fill out this report. And so I'm filling out the the police report and she comes up to me and she's crying. Understandably. She's incredibly upset. She hands me her cell phone and she says, can you talk to my husband? Please, please. Can you talk to my husband? And I say, I'm still a little dazed. Mm-hmm. So I was like, and I can tell that she's upset. And I was like, Oh, okay, okay, sure. Sure. So I take the phone and I put it up to my ear and This real, like, it's going to sound like an exaggeration, Mm -hmm. but this is really what his voice sounded like. He's like, hey, uh, my friend, I understand we had a little bit of an incident. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, yeah, we did. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, I will never forget this. He says, um, well, you know, uh, my wife, she doesn't have a driver's license. So my insurance company, uh, they're not going to like this too much, if you know what I'm saying. And I remember thinking, yeah, I I know what you're saying. It's exactly what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) So he ends up offering me this deal. He says, um, again, exact words. He says, I run this kind of uh, independent body shop up in the Bronx. Why don't you bring the cab up there? I'll throw you 75 bucks. We'll fix it up. You'll be back on your way. No problem. And in this moment, I'm, I'm... I'm realizing, I like look out at the cab, which is still sitting in the middle of the street. there's literally smoke coming out from under the hood. This thing is destroyed, And I'm thinking, if I take this back to the taxi garage that I have rented it from, they're going to be like, "Never again will we give you a set of keys to another cab. You're done here, and it's like nightclub patron number three time again, you know, right. game over. Whereas if I take this deal, I'll get 75 bucks and I'll get to keep working. Nobody will be the wiser." So I say to this guy, okay, I'll do it. And I, I close the flip phone because it's 2007, and I hand it back to the woman. She looks as shocked as I should have been that I have taken this deal. And I fold up the police report. I stick it in my pocket, and I say to the cop, we're not going to worry about this one. And he's like, suit yourself, idiot. You know, like, right. <laughs> I don't care, you know. So... Then, uh, I go back out into the street and he's given me the, the guy on the phone gave me the address of the garage, but I go back out into the street and the cab won't start. So I'm like, well, that's it. So I call the, um, I call the garage's tow truck. The tow truck comes, I get back to the taxi garage and I have this very vivid memory of it drops me off at the curb and I, there was this long ramp that went up to the office of the guy who ran the taxi garage. His name was Sonny. And I remember, like, heaving this huge sigh and, like, Charlie Brown walking, like, up mm. this ramp. And he's, like, already there. He's seen the tow truck pull up. He's like, what happened? Oh, my God. Like, you killed my car. Um, and I tell him the whole story. And I say, like, anyway, I got this police report. So here you go. And he, his whole face lights up. He's like, this is fantastic. I got all the information I need right here. I'm going to nail this motherfucker nice work and i go like what he's like let's get you back out there hands me the keys to another yellow ford crown victoria sends me right back out into the street like nothing happened Mm -hmm. so i am elated obviously and i feel like this is a sign this is a sign that i'm in my right place i have found my spot in this city and uh it's like a Maybe an hour or so later, I'm stuck in traffic on 41st Street. There's this very intense um, spot on 41st Street that always bogs down. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling really, really good. And uh, <laughs> my phone starts ringing. And I remember thinking to myself, because I had sent my headshot and my resume to the public theater, and I remember thinking like that. Yeah, see, this is the universe coming through again. That's the casting it's director. That's Joe Pap. That's Joe himself. He's like, let me call this guy. Yeah. <laughs> cause he does things right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't pick up, I don't pick up the phone, uh, cause I'm like maneuvering the cab and then we come to a, a stop. And so I pick it up and I listen to the voicemail and it's not Joe Pap. <laughs> it is the husband of the woman who hit me and he leaves me this message and he threatened my life he goes like you motherfucker you think you're going to get away with this shit i i got your medallion number i'm going to track you down you're going down asshole fuck you and he like hangs up the phone and right as i like this voicemail ends a trailways bus sideswipes the cab and knocks the left side view mirror off <laughs> which means that now in this one day I have wrecked two cabs (laughs) and incurred the wrath of this, like, small-time mobster guy, and I just completely lose it. I start pounding on the steering wheel and screaming, like, what the fuck is wrong with this city? I don't belong here. I'm going to die here. This place does not give a fuck about anybody. Oh, my God. I'm so upset that that I forget I have a passenger in the back seat (laughs) who... Because this is New York, her response to her cab driver having a psychotic break is to go, "Ah." (laughs) 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 So that night, um, I I take the second busted cab back to the garage. Sonny is like, what is wrong with you, dude? Um, And my friend is having a, a birthday party. And so I go to this birthday party. There's free gin and tonics because she has like... Uh, you know, <laughs> she's. W- w- I was like 26 at this time, and instead of driving a cab, she was working at a hedge fund. So I'm sitting on this banquette. I've had like six gin and tonics. I'm so scared <laughs> that this guy's going to kill me. And I tell the, uh, her name was Lindsay. I tell my friend Lindsay this whole story of the day, and it it gets to the end, and I say like, "Isn't that crazy? I'm probably going to die." <laughs> and she goes, "Sam, that is crazy. You're probably going to die." you don't have to do this job. Like, she and I had gone to college together. She was like, my hedge fund is looking for, like, a receptionist. Do you think you could handle that? And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of tend to fuck things up. You know, like, I was really upset. And she's like, send me your resume when you get home. So I sent her my resume when I get home. Literally, like, three days later, I'm a receptionist at a hedge fund. I never get back in the driver's seat of another cab. And I'm like safe and I file expense reports and, you know, I answer the phone in a chirpy way. There's free, you know, Mm -hmm. mixed grains every morning when I get to the office. And I have never again been in as much danger as I was that day in the cab. But I have also, if I'm being honest, I've never been as happy as I was when I was driving across the bridge and felt like I really belonged there.
0: What, what a great, uh, first of all, thank you for for uh, reprising that, sure, that, yeah, that story. Absolutely. And I think what really struck me about it, too, is that desire to connect, that desire to feel a part of something. Um, I think so many of us feel at times in our lives invisible, left behind. We're not doing life right. Yeah. Everybody else got a ten yard head start, mm-hmm. and we've blown it. Mm-hmm. We've blown it. Mm-hmm. What What was it like for you as a kid? Did you grow up in Virginia?
1: I did. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And what was kind of the emotional temperature of of the house?
1: Well, um, so I would say from the time I was, you know, earliest memory until the time I was a teenager. I thought of myself as having gotten that 10-yard head start um because the, the big thing that I remember my parents doing is they talked constantly to each other they to the point that my brother and I would often look at each other and like roll our eyes like what are they even talking about like they and they had known each other you know they met when they were I think freshmen or sophomores in college uh they were each other's first partner first love Um, and my dad used to do this thing when my mom would come downstairs in the morning where he would go like, ah he would do this little fanfare and he would say to my brother and I like, you guys are great, but I love your mom the most. Like it was so (laughs) gross, you know, like, um, and then around to a
0: kid, but I think to adults, it's like beautiful. It's totally beautiful. yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and then I have this memory around the time I was 15 or 16 of all of a sudden the conversations just stopped and it got so quiet in our house. Mm. And I started to notice that my dad was, you know, coming home later and later and later at night and... um spending time with somebody who was not my mom. And I could tell that my mom did not like that. And I, I think because everything had been so good, um, well, actually, if I'm being totally honest, there's more to it than that. I, there were a couple of instances where I, I sort of caught I sort of saw what was happening. I discovered evidence, I should say. Uh-huh. Um, actually, if if I'm being honest, what, what happened is I went out into... <laughs> this is, again, before I had a driver's license, I went down, out into my dad's car um, to practice shifting. Mm-hmm. And I got in, and it smelled like perfume. And my mom did not wear perfume. And I just remember thinking, like, oh, no like, wow, oh, no. And, but I still, but I didn't say anything because, you know, you just don't want to believe that yeah. these things are true. And then it, it, you know, it took a little while for this to all come out, but it turned out that it was true. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was just ruinous from the standpoint of because I knew and I didn't think that I was supposed to say anything I didn't think that it would be okay to ask and I felt like they didn't think they could trust me with the truth even though I knew
0: I knew the truth and so they never said what was what was going on. Did they get a? Did they split? They did. Yeah. Okay. And mm-hmm. they didn't say why. No. Um. Even though, which, if you think about it, it would be a tough decision as a parent. I, I would think most parents would probably, in the best interest of the kids, just say, you know, your mom and I have our differences, and it'd probably be best not to let them know. But the fact that you had that information yeah that must have really fucked with your head
1: it did and 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 i agree with you and and in retrospect you know through a 37 year old's eyes as opposed to a 16 year old's i see it from their perspective now and i don't know if i would have done it differently um were i in that situation but for me in that moment it just felt like your entire your entire existence has been under false pretenses and everything that you tried to do to live into the values you thought they were embodying was a waste of time. And I had been a super straight edge kid. I had been like really achievement oriented in high school, um, had never touched alcohol, had never touched drugs, nothing. And, but it, so now this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm now like 19 or 20. I'm in college. And I remember deciding like, well, it's time to like pull the cork out of that bottle and mm-hmm. just it like this feels so disorienting and upending to my value system. This must be why people do these things because it's mm-hmm. the only thing that seems big enough to fill that space. And they're just big parts of my, my, I guess my senior year in college in particular that, that just months that went by where I didn't, just wouldn't go to class and I would like wake up in the middle of the day and I would just wait until the end of the day when I knew people would be congregating in the courtyard outside the dorm and I could just walk out there and somebody would give me weed to smoke and people would be drinking and I knew that I could look forward to those what six hours or something Mm. um where it would start off very slow and by the end of it I would be able to go to sleep um and I am very grateful that that situation did not persist for me. It really passed that period of time in college. Um, But the thing that did persist was this, this persistent sense of like, everybody knows that I'm not worthy of telling the real story to. Mm. um, And they're protecting me from something that they don't think I can handle. And I just, became completely obsessed with that idea that people don't think I can handle it. People don't think everybody's doing you a favor that you didn't ask them to do
0: kind of uh, infantilizing you in, in, in a way. That's what it felt like. Yeah,
1: that's what it felt like. And, um, you know, I eventually started going to therapy and that was completely transformational for me. And I, I think it really helped me write the ship a little bit, but, what therapy <laughs> led to was this realization that if I'm being totally honest, that sense of there's more here, there's more going on here, particularly with my parents than they are telling me, it extends further back. Um, and the the point that it extends further back to is that my mom is a visual artist, and I am very inspired by her work, but it's also, in my view, extremely dark Um, she would make these sculptures a lot of the time that had, it was like a model of a house with these big railroad spikes driven Mm -hmm. through it. Or she would do these very heavily saturated black and white images of like a pickaxe against a concrete driveway. And it looked, it made it look like bloody. And I would stare at this stuff and I would think like,
0: where's that coming?
1: Where's that coming from? Yeah, exactly. And, um, my my dad, I wouldn't say I, I was getting any particular signals like that from him, but um, was your was
0: your mom ex- expressing these dark uh, pieces of art before the breakup?
1: They, it, it's a little bit hard for me to remember okay. what what the what the particular timeline is of when I started to notice it. But um, the thing I do remember starting to clock around that time is. She would tell... This is basically where I got the idea for Family Ghosts as a a project. She would sometimes allude to this story in her family that, you know, my grandfather, after um, my mom's mom died, my grandfather was very briefly married to this woman, and she turned out to be part of an international jewel smuggling ring. (laughs) And that that was it. That was the whole story that I would hear. And it was like, what? You got to give me more than that. Like what are you talking about? And I don't know if I would have wanted to pursue it further if it weren't also for this very intense art and some sense like that these, something that intense and probably traumatic and this visual art and also all the stuff with my dad, like these things all must be related somehow. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then with my dad, similarly, I eventually heard this story that, you know, I grew up, thinking that i had my dad and that he had these two brothers my uncle tom and my uncle rob and it turned out there was a third brother who had very sadly taken his life when he was young and that my dad had been the one who like found him wow and i didn't hear that story until i was well into my 20s and it's just all of a sudden i started to feel like well my parents, both at a very tender and formative time, were told, you know, you have to hold this very big rupture, um, but I, your parent, at this time in your life, don't have time or emotional space or availability to talk to you about it, so you've just got to package it up and keep going. And that must have been horrible for them. Yeah. And... um I guess once I came to that realization, it it started to make me think that I I just wished so much that they had felt like they could share that with me. And it also made me realize probably why they had not felt like they could narrate what was going on for them to me, because all of their training around stuff like this had been, nope, we don't talk about this. This is not for discussion and um i think once i discovered that about them it i mean it made me love both of them a lot more i obviously i mean i still love both of them very much of course um but i think i don't think i could have come to that understanding or realization about where these um impulses around truth and mm-hmm. not secrecy but concealment Um, had come from if I had not been so upset by the fact that, you know, I thought I had figured this thing out and felt like they didn't feel like they could trust me. Did you
0: ever tell your dad that you knew that you smelled that perfume when you were however old? (laughs) Well, uh,
1: I have since told him about it because I I did a podcast episode about it. Yeah. Um, And he was really upset that I decided to put it into the show. Um, which I understand I understand mm-hmm. why he was upset about it um but it has honestly been a really incredible thing for my relationship with him because one thing is you know i after once we had sort of made our way through this blow up that happened after the episode came out, he said to me, like You know, I had never really gotten mad at you before, and it's probably good that I did, and I said, yeah i. <laughs> i'm really glad that you told me how you were feeling about it and yes i feel horrible that i caused you this pain but i also feel like look at this vocabulary that we suddenly have that Mm -hmm. you know 30 at that point five years into our relationship with each other the fact that we can still find this new emotional beachhead to stand on with each other is uh I mean, it, it's still very affecting for me um, to to think about that with him. And
0: and, and I imagine he must have finally given weight to what it was like for you to have that knowledge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, right after he—his feelings evolved after he listened to it, and I think he got more upset. But after he listened to it the first time, what he said to me was, you know— I don't agree with the way that you have characterized this or, and I, and I wish you hadn't done it, but it does help me understand what you were going through. And he um, apologized to me. And um, I remember after we did the first, before, you know, the episode came out and he was upset about it. We did this interview where, I think I sat and talked to him for like three hours and he told me the whole story of his brother who had taken his life. And I talked to him about why that felt connected to me to he and I losing some closeness in the wake of all this. Um, and then we went to a baseball game together after that. And I think in that day we spent nine consecutive hours together and we just talked the whole time. And I couldn't remember since I was a kid when the house was full of conversation it was the first time that I could remember having this consecutive period of time where we were really talking like we were really was about really something and it was about, yes, yes. It was connective. Yeah. And I love talking about baseball with him. I do. But, you know, I remember us sitting at this baseball game and he, you know, we would be talking about the game and he would turn to me and he would say, Oh, here's another memory about, about your uncle Dick that I didn't think of when we were talking, but yeah. you might find interesting. And, i just remember like i didn't want the day to end i didn't want the game to end um and so i'm i'm very sad that it it causes me pain that this experience of the show caused him pain yeah but in the long run i think it's been very transformative for us
0: when he first heard the episode was he listening to it with someone who wasn't his wife I don't know. I, I don't know that part. <laughs> how do I not how do I not take a swing at that? That pops into my brain. Of course it does. I can't sit with that. That's yeah. like you smelling the perfume. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna go to bed right. holding on to that. I'm gonna light that stick of dynamite and take down you and your fucking dad. Right.
1: I don't know that part of the story and it, yeah, I can't, I can't say, I can't <laughs> say, but like, you know, um, it's, I mean, it, you know, it, it's hard for me to imagine that that was not a good moment, but that is a part of it that admittedly I have, I, I have tried to just focus on how can I repair this situation yeah. with my dad and,
0: mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, in the in the spirit of, of honesty, uh I was uh I struggle with infidelity in, mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. marriage and it was something uh, to this day that I'm ashamed of. I I came clean about it, but um I caused a lot of damage. It mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. selfish mm-hmm. and um you know, I got help mm-hmm. for it and I learned better tools to cope mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with my feelings than, than doing that. So mm-hmm. I'm certainly not looking down at at anybody no, uh, no, for, no, no. for that. No, um, it doesn't. Come so in, I, I don't want it to come across as if I'm... Oh, it doesn't, you know.
1: It doesn't at all. It, it's interesting, though, like, you know, in terms of thinking about, other than deciding that I want to have, for as long as I possibly can, a career telling stories in people's families about these moments of like where there's a story that haunts you and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. I, the thing that the, you know, lack of discipline around alcohol and marijuana turned into in my twenties was uncontrollable spending. Um, I would, it's really horrifyingly embarrassing to me how much credit card debt I ran up. Um, and like I would get myself in, enough trouble that I had to, that there was not going to be any way out. And I would consistently find some way of, you know, some angel person in my family would come Mm -hmm. through with a loan and I could, which, you know, is another instance of privilege that just feels really, uh, Gross and uncomfortable to talk about that. Like, I think you should loan shark from the guy in the Bronx that fixed his <laughs> car. How could that have now, gone bad? That then I would have felt like <laughs> now I'm, yes. you know, there's nothing to be ashamed yes. of there. But, um, when I think about what I was doing, I think when I was spending myself in, in and out of ruin over and over and over again, is I, I think there was this way that I thought that by That it it was like, okay, if my parents aren't going to give me access to the inner workings of their minds, that means that what they're telling me that I should do, and I made this up, this, this, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't blame them for this, but that means that what they're telling me that I should do is figure out on my own terms how to replicate the sort of life that they seemed to have. And I can't do that on the money I'm making as a bellhopper cab driver. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is... It's somehow okay for me to be doing this because I'm, I'm trying to live into their image. Mm-hmm. Is the is the thought process I I had at that time, which looking back doesn't make any sense.
0: So kind of like you want me to be successful, but you're going to keep secrets from me. Well, I'm going to spend like I'm successful.
1: Yeah, and then you know probably on some level, then I'm going to like come to you and say like, now I you know now you have to give me money to get me out of this. Right. Problem like if you love me, you'll help me with this.
0: How how long uh, was this a
1: problem? Until like pretty recently. Like okay. I I think the problem started when I was twenty three, twenty four, and I think I finally got it. I'm thirty seven now, but I re, I finally got all my credit card debt paid off when I was thirty
0: three. And has um, it that issue resurfaced since then? It hasn't. Oh, good for you, knocks, man. Knocks good on wood. for you. Um, but it is always
1: always 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 right there um, and, and I tell myself all the time like when I feel sad about something when I feel anxious my first thought is just buy something mm-hmm. just buy and, and not buy an ice cream cone like buy a $3,000 condenser mic that you think will somehow make your podcast better you know or like buy an, an like a leather chair and an ottoman because you know then when you come home you can really feel centered like it's that level the kind of thing that digs a hole that's very difficult to get out
0: of. i i understand that i i had a lost weekend in cincinnati years ago i was on the road doing stand-up i think it might have been uh the late 90s and i don't remember if it was definitely mania and it might have been that i had just started taking antidepressants mm-hmm. and and i was experiencing hypomania but Over the course of two days in Cincinnati, I bought $35,000 worth of domain names, just one at a time at $70 a pop, staying Uh up all night, because in my mind, Uh this was like... The, you know, the Wild West, when they open it up and you could go claim land. (laughs) In my mind, this was the 21st century version of it. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't do immediately now, Mm -hmm. I was losing out. And this was where my future safety lay. (laughs) And they were all worthless. All of the names were horrible, Uh Uh horrible. Uh And like when I showed the list to people, they were, they just looked at me like, are you okay? (laughs) Do you remember any of them like <laughs> Oldpeoplefucking.com. oldpeoplefucking.net dot com <laughs> old dot net uh-huh. a lot of them you were want to cover
1: the waterfront you know yeah,
0: <laughs> a, a lot of them revolved around uh the radio business because uh-huh. I thought uh it's it's too long of a story to go into, but a, a lot of them were around like some would be romantic comedies uh-huh. dot com uh-huh. uh, you know because that's how this was before Google. And right. so mm-hmm. if you had the name of something mm-hmm. in the dot-com name, mm-hmm. it was more valuable. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I was squatting on yeah. these. And you can imagine the number of names that come yeah. to you, especially if you're hypomatic yes. in that time. But yeah. I look back at it, and it was and insane. It, it, it was insane. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. Was insane. And yeah. I eventually... Paid that, that credit card off, uh, but it was, a, whew, it was a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. But laughing about it now, it helps. Yeah. If I kept that a secret, I, I think that would still be fucking with me. Yeah. But I couldn't laugh about it for, oh, probably a good five or six years. Totally. After I paid it off, because I was so ashamed. I felt so stupid.
1: I remember sitting in my apartment, and I would look... I would be drinking, and I would look around at all this stuff I had bought, and I would think, you don't own any of this. None of this is yours. You don't own this place that you're living, and you—all of this stuff is—it's just props for a life—it's props for, like, a play about a life that you will never actually lead.
0: (laughs) And I (laughs) I don't think you're being hard enough on yourself in that. (laughs) That's—
1: Hey, Can you hand me some so I can just flog myself yes. with it while I say that? Yes. <laughs> um, and I would just like spiral and spiral and spiral on that. Um, and and I do think there is some connection to the, this this concealment, you know, that like by I think that I just, I do still cling to this wish that I, something had been shared with me about what it takes to exist in the way that our house did exist in those in those really "quote unquote good times." Mm-hmm. Um I you know, who knows if I could have clocked it when I was 14 or 15 if I could, if, if that information really would have gotten in, but I'd like to think it would have.
0: And what a great example too of how difficult it is for parents To know what you share with your kid and what you don't and when do you share it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no guide. Yeah. (laughs) There's no handbook for that.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's a way that it has manifested itself in my life that this is also something that I have moved past, but early in my dating life, I remember I would just be obsessed with like, I would say to my girlfriend, like, I need to know every person that you have ever been with. I need to know everything that, intimate thing that you guys ever did because if i don't know it i will make it up in my head and it will be horrifying and i will start to think because i've had this Mm -hmm. experience of i know a thing is true but no one wants to tell me i then will take the next step of making up a thing that i have no reason to think is true and deciding that it's true and then seeing you in a different way because i now have made up this
0: right horror show that essentially your sense. loved ones are guilty until proven innocent
1: yes yes 100 <laughs> percent.
0: I, I had a moment in high school where i can point to it and and really kind of say that's where i really lost trust mm-hmm. i i had started smoking pot and I was about 15 years old and I got caught smoking pot the first day of sophomore year Mm -hmm. before the first class, even like eight in the morning. And my dad was really upset. He said, this is the saddest day other than the day that my father died. And, and I had always asked my dad, please stop smoking. So I said to him, I'll stop smoking pot if you stop smoking cigarettes. And he said, okay, you got a deal. And about six months into doing it, I'm going to a concert with my friends, and they pass me a joint, and I said, no, thanks. And they said, oh, you're still doing that thing with your dad? And I said, yeah. And he just starts laughing really hard. This is my next-door neighbor. And I go, what? He goes, dude, your dad, for like a month, has been on the side of the house smoking cigarettes after dinner. Oh, no. And I just remember feeling something leave me.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Just like an innocence just leaving me. Yeah. And I just, then I, it was just like, give me that. Give yeah. me the beer. Give me it all. Yeah. And as I look back now, I really think that there there was, it was like I, I put on a, a, a suit of cynicism mm-hmm. and glibness. Yeah. F- probably for the next 25 years. And I'm not blaming, you know, it was a shitty thing for a dad to do. And I'm not yeah. saying it's all his fault, but that confluence of yeah. events didn't really become clear to me until, until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, and can you imagine what
1: it would have been like? And I, again, like I, would I be able to do this as a dad? I don't know. But what if in that moment where you got busted smoking pot, what he said to you instead of, and again, not to rag mm-hmm. on your dad, but like what he had said to you instead of, this is the saddest day other than the day my mm-hmm. dad died is I have this too. I have a need for this thing too. hmm It's hard, and I get why you're drawn to it. It can go to bad places, and let's talk about why you feel a pull to do it. Like, if if he had just invited you into the fact that this is a part of his story, too. Right. That could have been an incredible
0: moment. Well, I would have said, where's my dad? (laughs) Who has abducted my dad? (laughs) And brought this get away from me communicative yeah. facsimile of my dad because this is scaring me. Yeah. He doesn't smell like vodka, no. and he's paying attention.
1: Uh-huh. Something isn't Something.
0: I, I should go. Yeah. I must be high. My dad. My dad had many many great qualities. He he was he was a neglectful a uh, parent in mm-hmm. a lot of ways but he also showed up in a in a lot of ways yeah. and and he had a good heart i mm-hmm. i think both of my parents um had, were, were good hearted people um mm-hmm. but yeah parenting man. i'm so glad i'm not a parent Whew. i'm yeah. so glad i'm not a parent so what what are the struggles uh and thank you for indulging me in my little uh side trips uh, i I like to do a lot of, oh, of course. me yeah. tooing in uh, yeah. when somebody shares something yeah uh, that's one of my I'm,
1: favorite things about the show oh, I, I love that you do that thanks
0: yeah. uh, i'm just i'm always afraid of being left out and i want to i desperately want to be understood <laughs> <laughs> you know, i under-
1: i I see you and i hear you <laughs>
0: What are the the issues today that you struggle with, if any? Sure. Um the fears that are kind of recurrent uh in you. Yeah.
1: I, I think the the big thing that continues to come up for me now. I, I feel like the, the spending thing is, is much more under control. I feel like my relationship with alcohol is um not cause for alarm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I do still drink alcohol, but I, you know, I have like a handful of drinks a week and I don't get drunk very frequently. Um, I don't really deal with marijuana very much anymore. Um, but the thing that I do do is, is I still have, um, a, I guess the, the phrase that I hear people use about this is catastrophize, but I do that with, like, I I put it, I want to trust people so much um, because I want to get back to that time when our house was full of conversation and light and laughter. You felt secure and connected and stuff. and Um, And I am completely convinced that everyone will betray me.
0: All the time. How could that harm anybody? (laughs) How could that occupy space in your mind? (laughs) And
1: so I get into this real fight with myself where I think, you know, whether I meet somebody in a romantic context or a professional context, and I think, this is it. Like, this is everything that I've been dreaming for, and then I'm waiting for the punch, From the second I decide that they are who I think they might be, I am ready, I'm I'm analyzing every shred of interaction that I have ever had with them until I can systematically and logically eliminate any way that it might be true. And then I take three deep breaths and then I think, but what about that thing I heard them say on the phone that one time? Mm -hmm. They were probably talking to this other person and that probably meant this and it just goes and it keeps me from being able to um I mean obviously it makes it hard for me to trust people it makes it hard right. for me to um you know in the presence of those people exist in a way that like honors the energy that they're actually emanating
0: yeah and you're not present in yeah. that in that moment cuz you're in the future or the past or somewhere yeah. in between
1: at the same time yeah but the thing that is particularly bad about it is that when i am I, when i'm not with them i am constantly trying to figure out i'm constantly going through these cycles and it makes it so that i can't work and i can't sleep um and so I just end up staying up all night ruminating. Um, Do you
0: Facebook mm-hmm. stalk?
1: No, that I am thankfully
0: good good about. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's it, it the rabbit holes, jealous people mm-hmm. uh can go down, mm-hmm. uh, or or just people that have a conspiracy theory mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. It occupies so much space that I think is a better word for what I do
1: rather than catastrophize is catastrophize is conspiracize. like I it's this perpetual feeling like there's a whole dynamic happening here and they think I don't know I fucking know and I'm not going to say anything because I've got to let this play out a little further Mm -hmm. until I have proof but when it all comes out I'm going to say I knew the whole time like and then I get these like fantasies in my head about having that conversation or comfort. And this, like, to be clear, like this is about, you know, talking to like somebody in the podcast industry who like says in passing that they like the show. That's all it takes for me to like for these suspicions to bloom in my mind. And it, it gets very self-sabotaging because I can't then, I, I can't take people at their word and then go off and do the work that is necessary to honor the trust that they are trying to show in me. um, And, you know, it conveniently makes it so that it's always everybody else's
0: fault if I come up short. Sure, or sure. Then you can be the victim yeah. and then you don't have to change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Uh, I'm My just... Oh well, no, go ahead. I was just having a conversation with a friend today and uh, he you know was kind of taking the relationship he's in today mm-hmm. filtering it through the childhood filter of I'm going to be betrayed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, you you you're in a relationship, you got to take each other mm-hmm. at your word because if you start trying re- reading shit into it that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, and you mm-hmm. are going to sabotage, yeah because you're either going to wear that person out mm-hmm. uh, and push them away mm-hmm. um, or or you're just you're going to fuck it up in, in some other way. That's all energy that could be spent just being present with that person mm-hmm. or taking time out to have a difficult conversation, yeah which you know. always, in my experience, goes pretty well you know yeah. like You're, you and your dad i mean if yeah. you and your dad can have that conversation uh huh what the fuck can't you talk about right
1: what am i afraid of if i can get through that crucible right of like the scariest thing and, and you know i'm it's very fortunate for me that that's like the scariest thing that's happened in my life but like if i can get through that crucible i can certainly talk to a partner about like Hey, you know, sometimes I get anxious about this thing. I know
0: it's probably crazy, but yes. can we just check in about it? And somebody, and somebody a partner that doesn't want to have that conversation, well, you've got information that that's not a partner you want to be in a relationship yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's like just addressing the thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the in the right tone at the right time with the right words. Mm-hmm. It's to me that has unlocked so many great things. In life, and one of the things my therapist tells me all the time is, "What are the facts on the ground?" Mm-hmm. Stop yeah. filtering it through the childhood bullshit. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. what are the facts on the ground? And mm-hmm. usually, the facts are on the ground. Are, are everything's okay? Yeah, maybe it's not what I dream right. them to be, uh-huh. but they're mm-hmm. they're okay. Everything is okay for the most part. Yes, and like
1: the, <laughs> the yeah, everything everything is okay, and. Like no one, this is the thing I actually write out to myself sometimes at night. Like no one's doing you a favor, like no one's humoring you or if they are, it's not because they, it's not because they think you are, you need pity. It's because they're like, let's give this guy a break.
0: You know, I have a friend, just a real kind of hard-nosed guy in my support group who, when we get people that are new, he'll say, uh, for the people that are new, we're not lying. You're not that important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the good news and the bad news is it's not about you.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sam... Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sam's podcast is called Family Ghosts. Uh, people can follow you on social media at at Sam Dingman, D-I-N-G-M-A-N. Mm-hmm. Really, really enjoy talking to you, man. Thank you so much me. for coming on. Appreciate it. I love when we have an episode where we dive into something that maybe we've touched on before, but is a, a profound example of it, and. To me, his story is such a great example of the importance of sharing secrets with somebody and being willing to have a difficult conversation. And, and you know, my therapist always says a strong relationship can be defined by the way you come back together after there is a rupture. And it can be be even stronger than it was if there wasn't a rupture, but... Both people have to be willing to uh, to work on that. And what a great example of that! Many many thanks to Sam. Our sponsor for today is Attitude Bamboo Sheets. If you have never tried them, they are hands down my favorite sheets that I've ever slept on. They are so incredibly soft. They're made of 100% organic clean bamboo. Why not try Attitude? These amazing sheets have a 30-day risk-free trial and. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your sheets for a full refund. I don't know why you would. And they even cover uh, shipping on returns. Attitude sheets. They're as soft as silk, breathable as linen, but at the price of cotton. You're going to love them. And when you support our sponsors, you guys support our show. And right now, you guys will get 20% off your sheet set and free shipping. Just text MENTAL. To 64,000. The only way to get 20% off your set of attitude sheets and free shipping is to text mental to 64,000. That's M E N T A L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. We have some good surveys picked out. I like uh, how I'm saying we. <laughs> Me and my ego have some good. Surveys picked out. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Figuring It Out. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, Uh, never been sexually abused, uh, but then she qualifies saying, I haven't been sexually abused per se, but in my household growing up, sex was treated as a negative topic. My mom talked about it very rarely, but when she did, It was on the context of it being bad or disgusting. This caused me to feel a lot of shame around the topic of sexuality and with my own sexuality. Uh, She's never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. She writes, I had a professor slash mentor in art school who I looked up to. Years later in therapy, I found out he most likely had narcissistic personality disorder based on my accounts of my relationship with him. He followed the classic idealization slash devaluation cycle with me, at times praising my artistic skill and other times criticizing me to the point of tears in front of classmates. I used to joke that he enjoyed making me cry, but only later did I realize that it wasn't a joke, it was true. Any positive experiences with the abusers? He used to call me his, quote, other daughter and taught me some valuable lessons about not caring about grades and about working hard. He praised me a lot, but it's hard to know now if these were truthful or manipulative. Yeah, that is such the mind fuck about the person that you have the complicated mixed relationship with. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes before I leave my house, I think, I hope I die today. I'm a teacher and sometimes have fears that I will accidentally touch a student inappropriately without meaning to, or that I will suddenly snap and kill my dog. Darkest Secrets I've manipulated a lot of people in my life by using my emotions to prevent them from leaving. It's something I try not to do, but I can sense myself doing it at times still. That's so great that you're aware of that, though, because... It it can be so damaging to a relationship, you know, when when we start playing games and we start trying to leverage our emotions instead of just coming to somebody with our emotions in a vulnerable, open way. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't really have any atypical sexual fantasies, although sometimes I do fantasize about being hit. It doesn't make me feel horribly ashamed because I know that is a fairly common one. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell that professor how much he hurt my creativity and trust. It would be useless and fall on deaf ears, because if he is a narcissist, he will not give what I say any credit. So true. So true. I was just talking with somebody about that the other day, and we were were just joking that no true narcissist would ever say they're a narcissist. And if somebody says... You know, I'm narcissistic. I mean, I think everybody uh, has some traits of being narcissistic, but in in terms of like narcissistic personality disorder, um, I've asked therapists before, have you ever had anybody say that they have it, that disorder, or agreed that they have it? And I've yet to have a therapist say that they've had that happen. What if anything do you wish for? I wish that I were normal. I felt relief initially at being diagnosed with bipolar 2, but now it feels like a heavy burden and an obstacle to living the life I want. Have you shared these things with others? I share some of these things some of the time. People usually don't know how to respond or give unsolicited advice, but others are very empathetic. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little bit better and surprised about some of the things that came up. Thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by somebody who calls themselves, uh, I might be a werewolf. Um, they they don't Id- identify as any gender. They write, I don't fucking know. This quest- question keeps me awake at night, but I might be making things up. And their loves. The hair on my arms. Feeling my muscles after a good workout. Feeling that clean and nice whole body exhaustion after swimming. Oh, that's such a great one. When my Latin translation makes perfect sense. When I learn something new that excites me. Having a great conversation with my boyfriend about stuff that interests us both. Being occasionally addressed in a gender-neutral way. Sadly, this rarely happens as I haven't told anyone about my gender identity struggle. And we don't have they slash them pronouns in German. But it feels fucking right every single time. Baking really colorful cookies in funny shapes. This podcast. Reading a good book that seems to be written for me. Spending time with that one close friend of mine who's the most forgiving person I know looking at the reflection of my body in the mirror and feeling love for it. It happens, sometimes. That one really cool, oversized t-shirt I found recently that makes me feel good in my own skin. Finishing an exam early and leaving the room before everyone else, just breathing in the silence of the empty hallway, thinking, Prof, go fuck yourself. (laughs) And allowing myself to be weird oh those are so great those are so great thank you for that all the surveys that 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 i read and the the ones that i don't even get a chance to read on the podcast uh, you know goes without saying they're so good and i wish i had the time and energy to read all of them on air stop being so fucking codependent This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Scab. He identifies as gay. He's in his 20s, and he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. I was raped in a bathroom when I was 14 while I was skipping school. He took pics, and being secretly gay in a small town, I was too ashamed to tell anyone. It took me 15 years to finally realize that rape didn't make me gay. He's been emotionally abused. After I came out as gay, I've dealt with a lot from being called fag and being hit to being gang-bashed by a group of classmates using steel star pickets as weapons. Over a decade later, I can still see some of my injuries. Oh my God. My mental health was never the same again, and I can't trust many people. Man. That is heavy. I'm so sorry. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, it made me wonder over the years if I asked for it. Even though I'm aware it's their actions and fault, the thoughts still cross my mind. I think that's pretty common, sadly. Darkest thoughts, two come to mind. The first involves murder, and the second I somewhat acted on. Attempted to plan my own funeral so my family wouldn't have to. How Darkest secrets. I stalk my rapist. Nothing too serious. I post him vague threats. I know what you are. I know what you did. I'm always watching. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My fantasies never go sexual, just intimate, like kissing and cuddling. As a male, I often lie about them. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my father, I'd just like to ask why he changed, because I didn't. What, if anything, do you wish for? Love. Have you shared these things with others? No, my life is dark and depressing, and I've witnessed, witnessed so much sadness in the world, I shouldn't add to it. You wouldn't be adding to it, you'd be giving somebody else a chance to be there for you which can help their spirit help how they feel about themselves and it can help you how do you feel after writing these things down it took me 2 hours to word it right but i feel an odd relief and i appreciate you you taking the time to go back into all that painful shit is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Find something that reminds you of purity in this world. I work in childcare. Watching kids play and learn reminds me to give life another chance. Amen. Amen. It's so hard when our trust is violated, and that becomes our template for going through life cynical and guarded. And it's such a it's such a terrible way to go through life. This is from the love survey filled out by an agender person who calls them. Can can I just share a love? I love how many people who are non-binary or trans or just outside the typical mainstream society that we kind of normalize and uh, I've I've run out of words but I love how many non-binary people fill out these surveys. That means a lot to me. Uh, Cat Dad identifies as agender and writes I love my cat's soft little armpits. I also love when he's been laying in the sun and then I can pick him up like a big squishy heating pad (laughs) so great i love when my dog gracie comes running in from the backyard and she smells like the outdoors not in a bad way but just like like her fur smells like fresh air i also love how she will just get up and run like to the backyard or come in from the backyard just with a sense of urgency (laughs) I would just love to know what is going on in her brain. This is from the Love Survey filled up by a woman who calls herself Auntie of the fucking Year. And she writes, I love holding my new baby niece and talking to her about how to not be a dick to people and how I can't wait to teach her to roller skate when she can walk. I love big skate parties when it's crowded and a good song comes on and I feel part of something bigger than myself. I love wrapping my big beagle up in his fuzzy white blanket so he looks like a sheep. I love when my clients say ridiculous things that I randomly remember later on and laugh. I love my girlfriend's Instagram account for her crested gecko. I love the show Euphoria's soundtrack. I love driving home from Thanksgiving dinner when the radio stations start playing Christmas music and my birthday is in a couple of weeks. I love cooking and dancing in my kitchen to One Fine Day by the Chiffons, or doing a dramatic interpretation of Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las. <laughs> and he comments to make the podcast better? I really like when you have guests on who talk about acting out sexually. Uh, slash hypersexuality after trauma. I feel like the common narrative involves people shutting down completely after sexual trauma. And it's validating to hear people talk about going in the opposite direction and almost reenact their trauma through sexual encounters with other people, since that's what my experience has been. Yeah, it is really common for people to to do that, and um, and and it's. It's then another layer of the shame that we heap, heap on ourselves which stands in the way of recovering and and really learning to accept ourselves. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself foxtail butt plug. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 20s was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she doesn't elaborate. She's never been physically abused, but she has been emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I think about being raped a lot. I sometimes masturbate with toys with my eyes closed so much that I hurt myself with them, pretending I'm being raped. I'm also paranoid that maybe I was raped as a child or molested because I have a tendency to repress memories. For example, mom and I moved out when I was six. We lived with my dad and his parents. I could remember all of their faces, even faces of strangers I'd seen just once when they visited me while I was in the hospital, but I couldn't remember my dad's face. It was like I was seeing him for the first time four years later. I could remember his tall, slender body and legs, but not his face. He was, slash is, a druggie and an alcoholic, but not a rapist. I know that. But what if someone else did something to me that made me want to perhaps relive the traumatic experience? I'm not even straight. Oh, and I'm not even straight. I don't enjoy sex with men, but still have that fantasy, and it's the only fantasy that makes me aroused when thinking of men in a sexual way. And that is not unusual. By the way, I've read many, many surveys where people share that same thing. Darkest Secrets. When I was 12, a group of boys, who were 14 to 17, cornered me into a garage and held me to a post. A boy was holding my hands behind my back. I always remembered that there were around 20 of them uh, around me, but after talking to my therapist and reliving and describing where everyone was, the number came down to 10 to 12. 12. That was two years ago. Now I still have the same image of 20 people mocking me and holding me down. The same way surgeons were holding me down to a chair when I was five. Because I was so small and already had one surgery and tons of drugs in me, they had to remove my tonsils without any painkillers or anesthesia. It is so horrifying. I was tied to a wooden chair, screaming, swearing, crying. They just ripped them out. I can still remember the smell of my own blood and some drug they injected me with that was definitely not a painkiller. I got so sick and lightheaded from screaming and the pain. I was untied and laid on a bed for exactly three minutes to calm down before they dragged me back to that wooden chair to continue the surgery. I know there were four people holding me down, but I can never remember their faces either. I recently made a male friend with Benefits, who's into BDSM, and I tied him to a chair and flogged him, slapped and punched him, and it felt so good. I wish I could have made him feel exactly what I felt, though. I'm so fucked up. And then in parentheses, I wonder what I'll feel if you ever read this aloud. It'd be great to know if there are others like me out there, though. You are definitely, definitely not alone, and I'm so sorry that you have experienced such such traumatic stuff um oh my my god sexual fantasy is most powerful to you rape fantasies pegging a man feeling power over another person complete control sharing that makes me feel pretty in control uh have you shared these things with others uh yes i found a man who likes pegging so i'd say it went well how do you feel after writing these things down uh the questions before uh, the one about sexual fantasies were heavy. The ones afterwards, not so much. And then that's that's the end of the uh, survey. That's all she filled out. But wow, there's a lot there. There is a lot. And um, it's, it's so common that we think of ourselves as abnormal rather than reacting normally or in a common way to stuff that happened to us that was abnormal. This is a happy moment or some happy moments by a guy who calls himself sometimes invisible sun. And sun is S-U-N. He writes, I went to see my new doctor today. She's the third doctor in the last eight years to hear about my everyday battles with anxiety, anger, emptiness, hopelessness, and stress. What makes me think that the outcome will be different this time? I don't know. But she was patient with me, offered her expert opinions, and we're going to try some new medication that I've not tried yet. I'm sharing this because I'm having a moment, a hopeful moment. I've felt beaten so many times in the past, but I'm not ready to stop searching for the solution that will hopefully work for me. This is all coming from a man in his 50s, by the way, so I've seen some shit I've been in the mud more than just a few times, but I'm still in this game. Sure, I have skinned knees now, but right at this moment, I kind of feel like a warrior. So, even if you're about to see your 10th doctor in three years, realize it doesn't mean you're weak. It takes guts to seek help. There's actually something beautiful about reaching out and being calmed by someone who only wants you to be well. Keep fighting. Keep searching for the solution you need. I know how goddamn frustrating the cycle can be. But there's probably a few people in your corner, corner ready to do all they can to make sure you land on your feet. Reach out to them. I hope everyone has some warrior moments. Wow, I love that, man. I love that. And warrior is such a great word for anybody that stops and faces their demons and wants to find ways to manage them instead of gnoming ourselves and running from them. I wish we could get the old episodes back up and available. Um, A lot of the old episodes are back up uh, from 2013 onwards. Uh, so the only episodes that are being held back are the first two years, 2011 and 2012. I keep those held back so I can release best of episodes when I uh, when I take a vacation. This is from the Love Survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself. Is butter a carb? <laughs> question mark. He writes i love the way my dogs smile when i give them a scratch and hit just the right spot oh i love that it's such a good one i love when i do that with gracie and her eyes immediately closed and she's almost asleep i love the smell of a baby as you rock them to sleep oh that's a great one i love the warmth of an electric blanket preheating my sheets in winter i love that my life took a huge turn and ended up medically retiring me from the marines So that I can enjoy life now without the stress of my former jobs and the physical strain of PT. I love that I have the time and ability to do woodworking as a hobby. I love the satisfaction of completing a project and it turned out better than I expected. I love that I chose to live instead of killing myself as a teen when I figured out that I've been raped by family members multiple times over the past seven years. Wow, that is deep, man. That is deep. And I'm I'm so glad that you're in a a good place. And um you sound like a really sensitive, sensitive soul who's been through a lot of shit. And then finally, this is the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Tsuga, T-S-U-G-A. She writes, I love listening to podcasts and making homemade pizza on Friday nights. I love waking up to my husband stroking my head and opening my eyes to see his sly grin. I love walking through a forest in a gentle rain shower. I love being in my bedroom in fuzzy pajamas while a blizzard rages outside. I love going grocery shopping late on a summer night. That's such an unusual one. It was so great when I... Kind of picture that. No, I'm bullshitting. There's nothing I like about grocery shopping. That was me just trying to trying to be a part of your, your love. I love a low-key weeknight get-together with friends. That's a great one. Oh, I love this next one. I love stumbling on some edible wild fruits or berries. Oh, that is such a great one. I love walking around a big city. A huge contrast to my isolated small town, and finally, I love waking up and seeing the mountains outside my window, and getting into the mindset: "It's a beautiful day. Let's do this." Oh, those are so great. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed our episode today, and and by say when I say "our," I mean mine and Gracie. She edits the podcast. I don't know. Um, what kind of a job she's doing but i've got to assume um she's also learning photoshop right now and mostly she is just posting pictures of cats uh being bitten that bit ran out of steam anyway if you're out there and you're struggling uh you're not alone there's there is help out there it's just it's a matter of finding our tribe man and our tribe is out there and it's scary as fuck to put ourselves out there and be vulnerable and ask for help and share what's going on with us but it's the best decision i ever made and yeah you're not alone and thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. everybody I know is weird bizarrely, fucked up, I know
1: weird bizarrely it's it's fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely it's beautifully it's fucked up it. in some weird way.